dementia researcher with a blog and a rating. Hello there. My name is Ajantha Abey. I am a PhD student at the University of Oxford, and today I'm reading my blog post on my top 10 takeaways from recent conferences. Over the last few months, I've had the opportunity to go on something of a conference spree. They range from the local and affordable like Oxford Neuroscience Symposium and DPUK's Translation 23, online meetings like AAIC Neuroscience Next, and big international meetings like the AIUK Conference, ADPD 2023, and the British Neuroscience Association International Festival 2023. While there is the ever-present caveat of the impossibility of summing up all the exciting developments across the field, I have attempted here to put together my top 10 takeaways, both about the hot topics in dementia research and about conferencing more broadly. It should be noted that I am certainly biased towards my own area of disease mechanisms, though I try to look beyond this and stay relatively broad and high level, without going too much into depth on any one topic. Number one. Therapeutic breakthroughs are finally happening. For many years now, the dementia and neurodegenerative field has been mired by the mirage of treatments that might emerge five to ten years in the future. Finally, that vision is crystallizing. From the Canamab for Alzheimer's disease or Tofersen for ALS, regulatory approvals and concrete clinical outcomes are at last coming through. While far from perfect, these developments are generating a huge amount of discussion, excitement, and energy. Far from the fatalism of five years ago, when more and more companies were giving up on neuroscience, the recent breakthroughs have reinvigorated investment, brought renewed focus to the increasingly diverse pipeline of possibilities, and stimulated a lot of discussion, though not without controversy, of course. Number two, some of the most exciting advances are happening in fluid biomarkers. As much as new therapies are significant, it would seem that some of the most transformative work is happening in biomarkers. The recent advances in fluid biomarkers, like phosphatau in blood plasma for Alzheimer's disease in particular, could revolutionize testing, clinical trials, and the timing of therapy. When staying next to disease mechanisms and drug discovery, the biomarker field is probably somewhat overlooked by the lay audience, but advances here are starting to enable early detection of disease better definition of diverse patient cohorts in trials, and clearer stratification of trial participants. The proliferation of biomarkers relating not just to protein aggregation and neurodegeneration, but also to inflammation, is further giving us more comprehensive understanding of disease progression in human patients. All of these will enhance our ability to run better clinical trials with therapies that have a better chance of working. It's arguably the area enabling the biggest advances in the dementia research field at the moment. Number three, digital biomarkers are on the rise. An offshoot of the biomarker story that is still relatively niche, but looking increasingly exciting, is the space of digital biomarkers. While these haven't gotten as much attention as their fluid counterparts, the increasing adoption and power of wearables like smartwatches and personal digital technologies like smartphones, alongside advances in simplifying complex hardware like electroencephalography, EEG machines, and the rise of cloud computing, all seem to be enabling a lot of growth in this space. Digital and cloud-based neuroscience companies are attracting more funding, and while very early stage, exciting developments are occurring like prototype in-ear EEGs that could help overcome common issues such as compliance. 
Digital biomarkers have enormous potential to help remotely monitor patients, ease trial participation, and potentially, eventually offer population-level screening. One big issue this field has to face, though, is that of trust and privacy. As even more tools such as artificial intelligence and virtual reality technologies emerge for collecting and analyzing individual data, it'll be vital to consider how research and healthcare systems can best utilize mass data collection and maintain public trust in a world increasingly skeptical of big tech, big pharma, and big government. Number four, spatial transcriptomics is the hottest new technique on the block. In the land of disease mechanisms, omics and big data is nothing new, but incorporating spatial data into single-cell analyses is one increasingly popular development that is enhancing our ability to interrogate cell-level data. While genomics initially gave us genetic data about individuals, then bulk RNA-seq helped us understand broad changes in gene expression, and single-cell approaches helped us identify which and how individual cells are changed in disease. The newest iteration in the OMS journey allows the interrogation of single-cell gene expression in situ. This has opened up opportunities to examine cell responses and interactions with nearby protein pathology and inflammation, explore questions around selective vulnerability, and visualize how diverse disease-driving pathways relate spatially. It's a very cool emerging technique, and I'm excited to see more creative uses of it. Number five. Everyone's new favorite cell type is microglia. First, it was the neuron, the logical focus of neurodegenerative disease research. Then came astrocytes and a wave of interest in the role these helper cells play in disease. Now the time of the microglia has come. In Parkinson's and especially Alzheimer's, more and more genetic evidence points to an important role for these brain resident immune cells in disease risk. The concurrent rise of induced pluripotent stem cell models for making patient microglia in a dish has aided this discovery boom with co-cultures of microglia with neurons and astrocytes or organoid mini-brain models incorporating microglia becoming noticeably popular. Alongside this is an increasing focus on the role of inflammation, the inflammasome, inflammatory biomarkers, and even suggestions that the Alzheimer's ATN, amyloid tau and neurodegeneration, definitional framework should be extended to ATNI for inflammation. This has also gone hand in hand with the increasing interest in the role of the gut microbiome in recent years, especially for Parkinson's disease and the role in inflammation there. In this light, it is incredible to watch one of the biggest shifts in the framing of these diseases, from proteinopathies to neuroinflammatory diseases take place. And it'll be fascinating to see research in the coming years on how the inflammation story intersects with the protein aggregation story to give us a more comprehensive understanding of these diseases. A popular line of investigation that seems to be bearing fruit is examining whether inflammation and glial dysfunction distinguishes between the cognitively resilient and impaired individuals with similar levels of pathology. Number six, lipids are an emerging frontier. A perhaps still relatively niche area that nevertheless appears to be attracting more attention and dedicated sessions is that of lipids. The last several years have seen a growing understanding that common risk genes in Alzheimer's like APOE and Parkinson's like GBA play a big role in lipid metabolism, and as such, efforts to understand lipid dysfunction in human, animal, and cell models is well underway. While still early days, 
This will surely be one of the key areas to watch in the coming years, and points to the massive proliferation in our understanding of diverse disease mechanisms, from potential involvement of the gut microbiome and inflammation, to the role of glial cells and vascular contributions to brain breakdown. Number seven, pathological heterogeneity and conformational strains are getting the attention they deserve. One of the themes developing from the last several points is that of disease heterogeneity, which has also featured as an explicit topic in recent conferences. Heterogeneity of pathology in patient populations is not new, but it is finally receiving the attention it deserves. This has been enabled by the emergence of neuroimaging and fluid biomarkers that are better able to distinguish patient subgroups alongside developments in omics techniques and mass multiplex imaging, allowing more in-depth assessment of copathologies in larger amounts of sample. Not only do we have a better appreciation for how the pathological milieu can differ between patients, but we can now better assess a diverse array of disease mechanisms associated with clinical outcomes. A related area of attention seems to be in examining whether different conformational strains of aggregating proteins underlie the diverse distributions of similar pathologies in different diseases. For example, alpha-synuclein aggregates in Parkinson's disease versus dementia with low bodies versus multiple systems atrophy. This is also enabled by techniques emerging in recent years like correlated light electron microscopy and various protein aggregation seeding assays. As our understanding of these diseases becomes more complex and more nuanced, working out how to integrate and interrelate different pathways and having people who can straddle different parts of the field will be increasingly important. Number eight, we still rely a lot on genetic and rodent models. Despite our understanding of the myriad array of disease mechanisms expanding and an increasingly diverse therapeutic pipeline, one thing that has not changed much is our reliance on genetic and especially rodent models of disease. It's remarkable just how much data across posters, talks, and trials ends with a qualification in mice slash rats. Even in human cellular models, we remain largely constrained to rare genetic disease variants. And in Alzheimer's research, many tau models use truncated or mutant P301L tau or similar, which do not reflect the conformational or genetic makeup of tau in the disease. On the one hand, a lot of this is done out of necessity, practicality, or utility. On the other hand, our increasing understanding of the complexity of mechanisms and pathology largely remains uncaptured by these models, and the translational record remains fraught. New ideas exist, including natural mammalian models, attempts to use live human brain slices from surgeries, and incorporating multiple different cell types in increasingly complex human cell models. Nevertheless, these remain rare examples and rarely discussed. Entire sessions devoted to new and emerging therapeutic strategies are exciting, but having all the data in these sessions based on the same genetic rodent models reminds us of the uncertain ground on which we stand. It would be great to see more attention in conferences paid to improving existing models and developing new ones that match our growing understanding of disease complexity and capture the diverse mechanisms that appear to be important for translational validity. Number nine, good moderators vastly improve a conference. Moderators are often overlooked as a role in a conference session, but at ADPD 2023 in particular, moderators were fantastic and maybe appreciate what an underrated effect they have on a conference.
In the first instance, a good moderator can set the tone for an entire session, bring energy and enthusiasm to engage the audience and contextualize the talk, especially vital in those after-lunch sessions, whereas a half-hearted moderator will only switch people off. Throwing in a few jokes, good or bad, can lighten the mood, create a collegial atmosphere, and help offset the need for moderators to be strict in their other vital role. Controlling the timing of talks. Keeping speakers, especially the big name ones, to time can be a daunting task, especially with interesting data or lots of questions and discussions to cut off. But keeping the conference to schedule is fairer on the speakers, makes it easier to swap between parallel sessions, and makes the entire experience smoother for everyone. The oft-overlooked moderator thus holds a lot of power in conferences, and when used well, it can make all the difference. Point number 10. Inclusion is taking center stage. Just as important as the scientific and research content is discussion about how we go about doing science and research culture itself. In this light, it's great to see more conferences proactively headlining issues around diversity and inclusion in big plenary sessions, as well as paying attention to scientific practices like open data, reproducibility, and statistical approaches. In the massive field of dementia research, it is vital that these issues don't get lost under all the exciting biology, because it is this very infrastructure of the research environment that produces that biological discovery with better or worse outcomes. Despite some particularly egregious examples, it's great to see that the mantle, panels made up entirely of men, is becoming a thing of the past. Conferences are increasingly being designed to accommodate diverse accessibility needs, and discussion on these issues are being put front and centre. Thank you for listening. Join the Dementia Research bloggers and share your own views.